Good morning, afternoon, or night, wherever or whenever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. I'm Brent Lawrence, and today we're asking, just what the heck is music theory anyway? So why music theory? And what's its usefulness anyway? Certainly, it's a thorn in the side of many music majors, and an area where many musicians profess weakness. I can understand this feeling. On the side of the musician, theory is used in the classroom as an academic yardstick, something that's restrictive, sometimes seemingly convoluted, and perhaps even antiquated. Moreover, the average listener has no more reason to seek out music theory, for all the reasons just expressed. But in addition to the grief it causes music students, theory can also make it seem like certain types of music are more important or perhaps more worthy of being analyzed than others. Indeed, the music of the classroom, our beloved classical canon, strongly holds to its roots in Eurocentric aristocracy or at least the so-called high art musical traditions that evolved from that particular culture. This is not to say that there is nothing precious in the classical canon, but why would the average listener possibly want to bother themselves with historical music practices that are largely outside of their own cultural context? Moreover, the sin of academia is exclusivity. Things are changing, but largely, the way we theorize about music, and the music that's thought to be worthy of analysis, is inhibited by the mechanisms handed down to us by the high art traditions that came before. Even in my own research, I have frequently bumped into roadblocks where a method of analysis simply doesn't exist. So you ask, why bother? Why bother with this quote-unquote music theory that's restrictive, that stifles creativity, that alienates people from classical music, or any music? After all, isn't it just a theory? To me, it's the opposite of all those things. Most simply, it's a way of communicating about the most intricate details of music, a set of tools to take music apart and learn how it works. Music theory can lead one to creative freedom and open your ears to the infinity of the sonic spectrum. As you listen to me speak, you only hear the words I say, and not the letters that are within them. Maybe you're just hearing the cadence of my voice in phrases or sentences. The same thing can be said about music. If I play this sequence of notes, you perceive it as a whole. Similarly, if I want to explain the music I just performed, I wouldn't say that I played a C followed by a D followed by an E followed by an F followed by a G followed by an A followed by a B followed by another C. I would simply say that I played the C major scale. 
Referring to musical material in this way has distinct advantages. For one, by telling you I've played a C major scale, I've created a shorthand for this particular string of notes. Furthermore, the C major scale is an agreed-upon set, which is always the same. So by telling you I played the C major scale, you can know each one of the notes included in this collection, what other notes you might expect, and perhaps you could even predict where each note will lead to next. The only question then is the style and artistic choice. But what if I played more than one note at a time? What if I played these chords? I could, as before, list all the notes contained in each chord in this sequence, but that would be ridiculous. Isn't it much easier and more clear to refer to the chords by their names instead of the individual notes that belong to them? This way, I can know that the first chord, called C, contains C, E, and G, and the second, F, contains F, A, and C, and the G chord contains G, B, and D. Similar to the scale, these chord names help us to understand what notes they are constructed from, but also, by knowing the notes contained in them, we can learn a lot about how these chords work together. I think this is where the time-worn cliché, music is a language, comes from. Like language, music isn't made from stringing together many individual components. It's how one builds with them and contextualizes them to make a whole. But sometimes I think it's better to think of music as a journey. Perhaps the chords draw the landscape, the rolling hills, the lakes, and the sky above. And then the melody sets you out in a direction and pulls your ear alongside it. But how do we know where we're going? In our chord progression, we hear chords and the order they occur in. But does this particular formation signal anything to our ears? Imagine you're giving directions to your house. You would never explain to someone that they need to approach the stop sign, press the brakes, but not too hard, come to a stop, look both ways, start turning the wheel to the right, gently let off the brakes, straighten the wheel, there, now you're on my street, look for my driveway on the left. What you might say instead is, if you go up Main, then turn onto Academy Street, that'll get you there the fastest. But if you go up Wildwood Road, that's the scenic route. Both of these routes, the efficient and the scenic, have different purposes. The efficient route gets you to your destination the fastest. It's no nonsense and isn't distracted by auxiliary influences. But the scenic route, on the other hand, might be a nice drive through a wooded area. Or maybe it's fun to swing your car through the curves in the road. Neither route is better, really, but they're used for different reasons. Let's think about notes and chords in this way. That, in context, they can lead our ears in different directions. And we can think about traveling through chordal sonorities as taking a number of different routes to our destination. We can be very direct. This way, our ears needn't worry about extra details hiding in the chords. Or we can take a slight misdirection on our way there. like we need to make an ice cream run on the way home. Sometimes we wind up in a place we didn't intend. We can even become lost, traveling in circles, 
not knowing which direction is home. The context of these chords gives us an expectation of where the music is taking our ears. Our minds create a musical map based on the information at hand. What can create excitement is when music deceives our ears and takes us to a place that we don't expect. That's the tension. That's what drives the music forward. With music theory, we can discuss what we expect music to do, and then how the music upholds or denies those expectations, and when. One of the most interesting things to study is how various pieces of music are similar, and it's probably more common than you think. But this requires a certain level of critical thinking. I like to think of it as having the ability to zoom in and out of a piece of music, to try and view the tiniest details between notes, or conversely, consider how large sections of music work as a cohesive whole. Take these two chord progressions. They do sound different. The latter even has an additional chord. So let's zoom in on that and pay hyper close attention to it. What's the difference between these two chords? The first one is major, and the second one is minor, but they're only different by one note. And in this case, it's our highest note just moving up by a whole step. Now let's zoom out. In the complete context, we hear the first chord C and the second chord A minor, which is relative minor to C. They're only different by one note after all, so let's consider that the A minor is simply ornamenting the C, prolonging the feeling that it gives us, making its C-ness hang around a little bit longer, but also providing some additional color. If we allow ourselves this consideration, these two chord progressions are essentially the same. The second one merely contains a C chord that's decorated with the addition of the A minor. It's easy when you're playing music in the moment to only think about the micro actions taking place, where your fingers are, what note you're singing, whether something is out of tune or not. But if we try to step back and look at large sections of music as a single unit, to in a way step outside of time and experience an entire piece simultaneously, we can learn a lot about what makes a piece of music sound the way that it does. Maybe music theory doesn't seem so scary now, or maybe I've made it worse. For myself, I love making music, listening to music, and talking about music. And music theory gives me a way to do all those things better. It brings me so much joy to find the words that explain the way I feel, to verbalize it succinctly, or at least expressively, and to share these experiences with others. If the academic stuff isn't your bag, I totally get it, and that's fine. All I ask is that you listen to music carefully, with purpose and intent, to quiet your mind and let yourself be completely consumed with the musicality. All the academic minutiae in the world 
is worth nothing if we can't bring ourselves to listen deeply to music. All music. Well, that was today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash musicintheory. Or you can go to one of my social media profiles, which will be listed in the show notes. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. I hope you'll tune in next time, but until then, keep listening. This has been Music in Theory.